recording a day early because you're headed down to New Orleans this week. Tell the folks what's going on. The Public Radio Program Directors Conference happens once a year. It rotates all around the country. I'm just playing. Go ahead. It's it's been here in the Twin Cities twice in the last 15 years. But yeah, so PRPD goes uh, tomorrow through Thursday. And it's just where program directors and other public media people get together to confer. In the conversations of diversifying concert spaces and, you know, DEI and classical music. I think the orchestras get the brunt of it because orchestras are the front-facing aspect of, of the industry. We also talk a lot about opera companies. Do you think public radio has been uh, relatively dodging bullets? Do you think public radio as an industry has been getting the fire these past couple years that opera houses and orchestras, concert stages have been getting, we, I offer plenty of fire, you mm-hmm. know, on this podcast, but mm-hmm. I'm saying just generally in, in the general conversation of DEI and the arts, has public radio paid the piper? I can't speak for other public radio stations around the country, but I do know that um, <laughs> we've been taking it from all sides up at my work, mm-hmm. at least I have sure. for, to, to some degree, but um, not yet. But I can tell you that there are things in motion right now. There are things that are that are happening that aren't visible right now. Yeah. That I'm throwing an awful lot of weight behind. Let's just say that. And we've had this conversation before. One of my struggles with, oh, well, there's a lot of work happening on the inside is mm-hmm. who who am I to believe that? Or who is the, you know, typical radio listener or or music fan or whatever, who are they to say, oh, well, we can't see it, but there must be something good going on. You know, it just it feels like that can be an excuse for slow motion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are mountains being moved that you can't see, but they're being moved. Just trust us. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what I I can't help but to think, you know, and and I I come from the industry. I know some of the mountains that have been moved and, and the the great movement that's happened in public radio when it comes to DEI and representation and all that sort of thing. And I have a view of the of the converse of mm-hmm. that being used as a as an excuse, if, if I may use that word. Sure. And one of the things that I'll be talking about on a panel down at PRPD is some of the ways that a public radio station or uh, any other arts organization that is starting to take these steps, knowing that the results are not immediately visible. Some of the things that you can do that show that in the meantime, here's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. For example, putting money in a composer's pocket to write music to put on the air. Right. Commissioning works. Commissioning works. And um, we have taken a very hands-off, hands-on approach meaning that we're hands-off in the creative process, but hands-on whenever we need to step in to help solve a problem or um, you know, handle an emergency situation or something like that. So what you're saying is that you're not going to get on stage and say, listen, all y'all racist, okay? <laughs> Maybe not that panel. But really, um, at the at the core of it all, we're, we're talking about building relationships, yeah. talking about rebuilding trust and building relationships. That's what's at the kernel of it. It's a it's a larger presentation that gets to that at the end. I've been doing real good about staying in a, a very positive space, especially with my Buddhism. I gave my grand 
uh, uh, forgivenesses, I think at the end of, of last year, last, or maybe, uh, mm -hmm. the closer, uh, the end, end of, of last season. season. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would be lying if I said there isn't just a tinge of a spark or a squeeze or something. When I think about a room full of, uh, public radio professionals who let's just state the facts predominantly white by a large margin talking about, oh, all of the movement we're doing and, oh, this is what has to be done in the meantime and X, Y, and Z. It's it's hard for me not to think about those spaces as echo chambers of perpetual non-motion. With, with that being said, though, uh, even I can acknowledge places where uh, there are some actual, you know, some huge efforts being made. Somebody that's going to be on the panel with you, I believe, is Suzanne Nance. That's right. Um, from uh, All Classical Portland. I got a, a note from uh, Bob Lord. Shout out to Bob. Uh, to offer a little bit of promo to one of their recent initiatives. Uh, I think actually last year, a couple of years ago, they began the Recording Inclusivity Initiative, which is exactly what you were speaking to, Scott, the commissioning and doing what they can to get new works, more diverse uh, works or more diverse playlists on um, uh, on on the radio. Let, let me just quickly correct myself for, for the case of other people. Something that I've been doing a lot um, on one side of my work is making the point that individuals are not diverse or that pieces of music are not diverse. We need to be careful how we use that word. A playlist can be diverse, but Garrett McQueen is not a diverse individual. Mm -hmm. you, you you see what I'm saying? You know, just to, you know, just to correct myself and, and make that point. Anyway, so... Um, uh, they, uh, All Classical Portland has a series of recordings that they're planning uh, to to put out. I'll have a, a, a website description in the uh, in description of this where, you know, they're, they're just trying to do the good work in their own way. And one of those visible, you know, tangible results of this initiative um, have, have been come out. There's a, a new album titled Amplify. It's on all of the streaming. Uh, it was uh, the, the label is uh, Navona Records, and it includes music by Lauren McCall, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, Jasmine Barnes, and all kinds of folks. I listened through this album, and there was one track on here that uh, I wanted to uh, give a, a little room to. It's actually the, the first track of the album, a really beautiful work called A Spark and a Glimmer. We'll listen to a little of it here. Spark and a Glimmer, a work there by Lauren McCall and some really incredible folks on the act actual recording. The uh, pianist there is Monica Ohuchi, uh, the cellist is Nancy Ives, and the violin player is my homegirl, Caitlin Edwards, out of uh, Chicago. So huge shout out to Caitlin. So that's just an example of what's on this Amplify album and, exa and an example of what public radio stations are doing to be a player in this game and actually, you know, put some some cards on the table and put mm -hmm. some some work on the table. Scott, we have a recording there, uh, again, a spark and a glimmer that very much fits into public radio classical 
radio parameters. Um, it sounds a little bit fresher. You know, I, I think most people right. recognize right. that as something as not Beethoven. Um, is this a destination? Is that a, a recording like this an example of a means? What What are your ideas on uh, the placement of a recording like this in the broader conversation of shifting the industry? Sounds like that could be on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> new, it could be the new, norm. It could be the norm. And I've been advocating for um, living composers for years and years. And this is what gets me excited. Mm -hmm. As I hear these new compositions that are coming through, getting their name out there and helping them to actually make it. Yeah. In the business, you know, yeah. get just so that people can hear their music and then go buy it for crying out loud. Right. You know? Right. Because that's the other thing. A public radio station can't make anybody rich. You know, it's not the same as signing to Universal or or, or uh, RCA or one, mm -hmm. or one of these big things. But it is a means and it's a very important means. A point that I make all the time is that the majority of people, if they're engaging Western classical music, it's not in a concert hall. It's through the radio or, or maybe even the Internet. But I think public radio has a, a huge, huge responsibility to this to this conversation this is going to be you know shout, shout out to all of the uh, prpd participants who uh bought scott a drink and gave him a high five after you know <laughs> after your presentation who's listening to this now what are your words to to all of these folks you right now in this moment have the ears of uh, program directors across the country they know my story they know how i feel, you know, and, you know, I'm here to build bridges and all of those things. But what, what, are, what are your words to these folks? What, what's, what, what do you see as the responsibility of each and every one of these program directors across the country feeding their communities, their own definitions of classical music, or what the definitions could be? The floor is yours. <laughs> if you actually do want to reach out to those communities sincerely, the people on this on this panel are just showing some of the steps and some of the ways, just the ideas to get things going. You know, it might look very different at other stations. Mm -hmm. um, and within, but within six months, we had new recordings at American Public Media to put on the air, and we were maximizing all of those in different ways. You know, making national specials and web specials and things like that. But my point is, if you really want to reach out to that community. You have to start rebuilding trust. That's the first step. Build the relationship so that the composer has a very positive experience and they become an ambassador for you and the work that you're doing. They can go to other people, their peers, and say, XYZ, you know, WXYZ over here just gave me X amount of money to write music. So they're, they're doing something. Yeah. But uh, I don't, it's been two or three weeks ago that we talked about a track, track record. Mm -hmm. You need to start a track record. Start building your, your, you know, what we did was we just started building a commission library. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take time. I was, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the opus here in a second, but you know, what you brought to mind a few weeks ago, I was in one of my Buddhist groups and there are different roles to each of these meetings that people play. One of the roles is um, intro music and, you know, offering some context of why you wanted to share it. So it was my turn to, uh, 
to share some music. So I was, um, I was actually, I, I didn't want to, you know, I don't take any opportunity for granted at all. So I was all the way chanting. Okay, so what is the piece of music that I should share? And, and what's a point that I can make through something I share? And basically what came to mind for me, uh, maybe Yannick was on my mind, you know, with <laughs> and all of his wokeness. Uh, <laughs> I, I decided to share uh, one of the movements from the Florence Price Symphony that won that Grammy, the uh, the the Juba movement, the third movement, I think from her, uh, it was her third symphony that I shared. Anyway, so what I'm talking about is, you know, once upon a time, you know, knew, no one knew her name. And if you could only imagine the barriers that she had to stand against in her day back in the 20s and 30s, but she had that determination and, and pushed forward anyway. So, of course, I can tie that with Buddhism, and, and that was the point I was trying to make. Well, someone in the group, well, people, a lot of people were in the group were like, oh, I've never heard of Florence Price. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Someone in the group was like, you know, I really appreciate your saying what you're saying because I've been hearing her name more and more on uh, the public radio station. And I'm just glad to actually be in a space where someone is talking about a composer that I, whose name I know and whose story I know. It just makes me feel like I'm I'm in motion. Yeah. And, you know, she said, That's nice. and I appreciate the role that you played in creating that reality. One of the pieces of maturity <laughs> that I've had to come up on, and I think that a lot of people need to dig more into and, and understand, is that some of the things that we put in motion won't fruit or manifest until after we're out of the space. You know, I want to give a shout out to Brian Newhouse, who used to be uh, the uh, general manager of uh, Classical over at Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, before he stepped down from his position, you know, he said something similar. He, he talked about how sometimes he has feelings about putting certain things in motion that he won't be there to see, mm -hmm. you know, that that are taking longer than than his tenure. But, you know, understanding the the power of that. And that's something that I have really had to sit down in. Um, I remember what the playlists look like when I started at Minnesota Public Radio, and I know what they look like now, okay? My word to the uh, the program directors is that putting some of these changes in motion are going to result in some nasty emails from people pulling their support. There, there are going to be some, some growing pains in these changes, but it's a surefire way, in my perspective, to get us to the next step. Uh, something that's going to be announced, I won't be at PRPD, but there's going to be some flyers and things uh, announcing my next uh, uh, nationally syndicated uh, program, uh, Gateways Radio, featuring recordings of the Gateways Music Festival. And in one of um, our production meetings, uh, one of our planning meetings, we were having this conversation. People who uh, see platforming new music or uh, diverse playlists as a risk. For me, I under well, first of all, I'll say I understand that there are many funders out there that, that that's who we end up bowing down to who do see that as a risk. For me, I don't even feel comfortable contextualizing it that way because it's sure fire. I know that I was 34 years old before I flew to New York and bought a ticket to go see an opera at the Met. OK, mm -hmm. I know what opera it was that got me there. And I know what the audience looked like when I was in that space. And I understand that to be atypical for that space. So fire shut up in my bones was not a risky move. It was a surefire way to not only sell out seats, but to get a new audience in front of 
of uh, of those productions. We we're talking about this with uh, Solange last week. That mm-hmm. isn't risky programming. I'm not going to be able to get a ticket to the New York City Ballet because Solange's name is on the front of it. Mm-hmm. And that's just what I wish and would hope that program directors and and uh, playlist curators and all of those folks would just flip their mind into thinking this isn't risky programming. This isn't a risky sort of initiative. This is a surefire way to make sure that this industry that you've dedicated, dedicated your life to survives. So what I'm hearing you say from all of this is that um, they need to have a plan, be ready for crossfire in all directions, keep your head up and follow your plan. Yep. And I hope that there are some plans because listen, if I am invited to speak at PRPD, there's not a program director there to pull me off the stage. There is no one to say, okay, well, maybe you should take a couple weeks off the air after what you said at PRPD. If I have to get up on that stage, I'm going to hurt some feelings. So, so Scott, maybe you could be the, <laughs> the, 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 the warm water as opposed to the ice cold or the, the boiling hot that gets people thinking about this. Or I don't know, maybe you want to go down there and be the boiling water. You, you tell me. Um. I have a good presentation to give. Okay. Well, that is what that's 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 what I'm comfortable giving away right now. All right. Well, this time next week we'll we'll, we'll get the update, but good luck yeah. down in New Orleans. Thanks, man. Shout out to all of the program directors and public radio professionals out there doing the good work. Let's hop on into this opus of Triloquy. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 163. Thank you to all of the returning listeners who keep supporting this show week after week and making us one of the voices, one of the important voices when it comes to change in the world of so-called classical music. If this is your first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast that critiques the traditional use and approach to the phrase classical music. We take music, we take news stories, we take dialogue and everything in between and approximate it to that phrase with the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to find out some of the folks who make this possible, uh, pass opuses, and to contribute, go to triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, Triloquy is made possible in part by Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. Special, special, special shout out to WXXI out of Rochester to WFMT out of Chicago and to the Gateways Music Festival for helping me realize my continued dream of being a radio host. Scott, I've I've been out of the game officially for um, almost uh, really about two years to the date now. Hmm. And you know what? I have yet to be off the air. Hmm. Hmm. That's really beautiful. I wonder. So thank you to everyone <laughs> who continues Strike to make me the down, and I should become the more uh, powerful. The, the terrestrial, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, giving Sith radio programming. Okay. Uh, I need to put a, um, a a lightsaber sound in the in the board. Anyway, thank you to all of y'all, all of the new supporters, returning listeners. Your support is appreciated beyond what I can say. Let's hop in here to Movement One. 
I'm gonna get us start this get us started this week, Scott, checking our accidentals with a sharp. I'm reading here from the Detroit Free Press headline: Soprano opera singer Kizma Jordan backed by hip hop band to perform at DSO. It says here, opera will come together with soul pop music for a hard grooving inspired flight when singer Kizma Jordan's opera soul experience lights up the Detroit Symphony Orchestra's sonic courtyard on Saturday. This was this past Saturday um, as we're recording this. I'll have the link in the description for y'all to check out um, a little bit more information on Kisma Jordan and some of her music. I've performed as folks who listen to this uh, podcast know with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, I had a two-year uh, contract with them. Some ups and downs. Um, <laughs> I definitely left the partnership with a, a pretty bad taste in my mouth, but the, the further I get from uh, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, the more I can see some active change, the more I can see uh, some of the positive movement that's happened based on the experiences uh, of folks like me and some really exciting stuff uh, that's happening. Uh, I can I, I don't know much about uh, Kisma Jordan, but mm -hmm. what I can say is that the Detroit Symphony has never had an aversion to really putting black music on stage. Uh, before we cut on the mics, I told you the two biggest shows that I played with the DSO. Um, one was the Danny Elfman Pops. I mean, that was one that you know the, the management comes on stage and said, "Listen, y'all can't get no pop, uh, no pops, no uh, no comp tickets." You know you. You're going to have to pay. I'm just sorry. Right. Uh, the other big, big, huge show that, you know, you just couldn't get in the building for was actually a Wayne Shorter Pops featuring Esperanza Spalding. Yeah. In, in addition to that show, you know, there was a lot of Eminem played on, on that stage when I was there. He's a, you know, Marshall Mathers is a local composer to, yep. uh, to Detroit. Yep. So um, they, they had Nas on stage with them a few years back. I was pissed that I couldn't play it. So the Detroit Symphony Orchestra is an ensemble, an organization that is not afraid to go there. Let's sort of tie this in with what we were talking about earlier with public radio. If orchestras are not afraid to put hip hop on the stage, to match opera with soul as Kisma Jordan does, when is public radio going to catch up? Do you think it's do you think normalizing those aesthetics on orchestra and opera stages will give public radio classical radio the okay to mm. ex explore that area it certainly would help right hmm. it certainly would help it do it um because you know there's there, there's collaboration between orchestras and, and radio stations all the time oh yeah and i really think that it is much easier for a station that is hyper local meaning they're not taking a a, a service like classical 24 my mm -hmm. the, my employer um you know, because uh, as a network, you're trying to serve one and a half million to two million people. Yeah. So well, I think it's easier. And a, and a per, but a particular one and a half or and, and two million people, right? Sure, sure. But what I'm saying is that when you don't have that big portion of the country, mm -hmm. it's, it's easier for you to change your programming to speak to the community that you're in. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Sure. Um, and she makes a great point here. It's hard to do things different. It's hard to be a part of something that is kind of going against the stream. And I get what she's saying, especially that first person who steps out into the stream of rushing right. water. Right. You might fall down and you might get washed away, 
Um, but I'm hopeful that there's just there, there really are things that are that are happening my, that I'm ho- that give me hope. Yes. My question is, what is the stream that Kisma is referring to going against the stream? It's not going against the stream of what black audiences want to hear or even what exists right. in the industry of hip hop, R&B, soul, all of those things, because the symphonic sounds, A, have always been embraced. Think about the Tower of Power and the um, Temptations and all you know mm-hmm. all, all of these arrangements with strings and stuff. So it's always been there and it continues to be there even in these contemporary sounds. So it's not the R&B, it's not the black music structure that she's talking about as the stream that has to be gone against it's it's classical music um i think this is my opinion um that the stream is the canon the stream is convention Mm. the stream is tradition (laughs) and when you start to disrupt that you know uh, i can't tell you how many radio stations i have seen change the format and they're usually part of a big production you know a group of radio stations with mm-hmm. one manager like a like a clear channel or sure. something like that right they always take a hit in yep. listenership and they need that bigger sugar daddy to keep <laughs> them going until sure. they can build the new relationship and so that's what public radio needs to do. It needs to start cultivating the relationships with the communities that they serve. And they need to be, re, I don't know if it's rehabilitating or not rehabilitating. Uh, the word will come up to me. They need to be helping their audiences understand the, the, the rich palette yeah. that is right in front of you that would only add to the canon. Only add. When we talk about shifting the canon, changing systems, I think we tend to have a a third person or an an abstract approach to that conversation. But at the end of the day, we're talking about individuals across the country who have to roll up their sleeves and make different decisions. Mm -hmm. So who are we talking about? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 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 keeping it positive. One of the things that I thought about digging into, especially in the introduction, was the idea that most folks in the arts, whether we're talking about orchestra musicians, whether we're talking about radio hosts, individual opera singers, at the end of the day, you don't actually have any power because you're playing what you're told to play mm-hmm. or, you, or you're or platforming, you're, you're airing what you're told to put forward. Mm-hmm. But there's still some responsibility there. There's still some pushing that a radio host with no power can do in this conversation. Maybe you don't want to, um, you know, illegally change programming and playlists and get fired and end up making more money. Maybe that's not what you want to do. <laughs> but there's something to be done. So I guess my question for you, Scott, is who are these individuals? Who w- the system needs to change? Public radio needs to change. Who do you see as the individuals, the people to usher in that change, to turn the oar on the boat, to to, sh- to turn the steering wheel? Who are those individuals? They're probably right out in your community right now, doing the work, and you're not looking at them. Uh, that's I'm saying a, with I'm saying within the structures with within. Yeah, I'm not. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So so maybe that's a um, part of the work determining who these people are. Everyone is agreeing yeah. that we need to change. Okay, the spider. All the Spider Men are pointing at each other. Who who is it going to be? <laughs> who who and 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 what is 
the thing to be once the individuals are are uh, uh, identified. I mean, maybe that's a question that y'all can have down at the hotel in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Who who are the people with power? A and B. What do those people with power? need to do and what role do people without power have in the conversation i will tell you that uh one of the names that comes to mind now that i'm thinking about it i hope that daniel gillum is there because i would like to talk to him and get an idea of what his listenership and membership has been like ever since he read that racist letter over the air and then said for the re- next to the rest of the hour we'll listen to black composers here's here's nathaniel Dett. but anyway back to kisma jordan one of the things that uh <laughs> another thing that she speaks to here uh she says it took a lot of overcoming to say I'm not going to audition for anything because I'm not going to really focus on this after years and years of auditioning and performing to step away from the norm. I think that's one of the other parts of the conversation we need to have. People who go to uh, conservatories and music school are trained to do a thing that you can't do if you're interested in change and shifting systems. I think there has to be something similar there for folks in public radio. You are trained to host a certain type of radio that platforms and centers a certain sound, certain composers, certain types of music. Do you have experience or ideas when it comes from stepping away from the training or stepping away from the path and the courage it takes to do that? Do I have experience doing that? I mean, did did you? I mean, you didn't major in, or did you major in radio in college? I, I did. I forget. Okay. Yeah. But so, so you're doing exactly what <laughs> you you plan <laughs> to do, right? The path looks exactly the way that you you thought it would. Nope. Okay. Nope. I thought that I was going to go and get a job at a, a top forty or an alternative radio station and do all the you know all the cool breaks, be the cool guy mm-hmm. on the air. Um, yeah, that didn't happen. Because let me tell you something, in commercial radio, they are there is always somebody younger and hungrier that will work for less than you. And I am <laughs> I am not about that sort of lifestyle. <laughs> you say you have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I know what I'm worth, but it was an internship that I had at KVNO in Omaha, Nebraska that um, had me just fall in love with the idea, the spirit of what public radio can be mm-hmm. yep. and that and that is the heroin like high that i have been chasing ever since in 1989 sure I, I give orchestras a hard time i give opera houses a hard time i give public radio classical stations a hard time but at the end of the day you know when all of the the shade is is put to the side i i believe in these infrastructures especially classical radio again as that thing that is most people's connection to that sound to the idea of what an orchestra is to what we can condition if i may use that word an audience to understand when it comes to that phrase classical music i really believe in the responsibility and the opportunity that's there and collaborations like the dso and Kisma Jordan, I suppose, help folks see what it could look like. I, I think it's interesting that um, you say the orchestra's doing this sort of thing, lays out the groundwork for classical radio stations to follow along and and try the same Create thing. Create a partnership. I sort of, I, I, I wish radio could be the leader. I understand that 
you know, there are certain things that are normalized in a concert hall that can translate really well into radio. I also believe that radio can be the thing that inspires orchestras and and opera houses because be. at, because at the end yeah. of the day, radio has a has a, has a much broader reach sure. than 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 these institutions. So yeah. maybe maybe that's another part of the conversation that needs to have just re-engaging the responsibility of these um, of these public radio institutions to communities and to the broader narrative. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, shout out to Kisman Jordan and good uh, luck, and and congrats for yes. you know on on doing your part to help us continue to engage these conversations and uh, shift the narrative. One of the tunes that uh, Kisman Jordan performed in this collaboration was an ode to the late Brianna Taylor. It's called "Remember Me," and this track has actually uh, been recording recorded. So we'll listen to a little bit of the opening of this "Remember Me" as performed by Kisman Jordan. listen to that i feel like one of the issues is we're conditioned to not understand what we're listening to in a classical context on classical radio it feels like as we're we're doing i'll speak for myself in in my live radio days especially in the early days if a recording slipped in especially around the holidays that was just a woman singing a song in her voice it didn't necessarily sound something sound like something operatic it was definitely in english if it sounded like something that was easily digestible there's that oh should should i be playing this or or is this in, in oh, the yeah. format oh yeah i have i mean what is at the root of that like just we're we're comfortable with the foreign nature of you know we're 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 happy with that colonized perspective of this music we aren't supposed to really understand it or it's not really supposed to be digestible or or uh or relevant to today that that, that seems like something that we need to dismantle even as listeners when yeah, it comes to to shifting that absolutely because there are listeners out there that even if you put a vocal piece on period you're then you've just ruined their entire night. I played a three minute aria. This was years ago. I played a three minute aria with Renee Fleming singing, right? Mm-hmm. And this woman chased me down online on a couple different <laughs> forms and such screeching. What, where do I write to complain? And I'm like, well, you're, you, you found him um, <laughs> here. And I looked at her Facebook page and she was a member of her uh, drum and bugle corps with bagpipes. You know, but the soprano thing was, you know, beyond the pale to have on the radio, I guess. There's mm. a, there's all kinds of opinions. Well, you you just should have told her where you need to get used to listening to this because I'm going to tell you what you'll never hear on radio, some bagpipes. I, I, think, mm. <laughs> I think one time I played a bagpipe concerto or something actually during a, a St. Patrick's Day, or, and I don't even think that's the Irish instrument, so now I'm problematic. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, again, shout out to uh, Kisma Jordan. All right, you brought in a, uh, an interesting accidental 
this week? This or, is or, yeah. What, what what do you got? All flat. These are you you're this, giving us some flat. This is okay. all flat. This might be a couple couple flats here. Um, there's been a couple different headlines about this story coming out because uh, a record label got behind this artist in a big way, signed them to a deal. The people in the community went boo, and they went, "Oh, you don't like this? Okay, well we're going to drop him like within a day." We're talking about Effin Mecca. You know Effin Mecca? I do now, but tell the people about him. Effin Mecca is an AI rapper that is artificial intelligence. So before we before we go any further, lay out the difference between this artist Effin Mecca and a group like the Gorillas. So we aren't just talking about artists who are realized digitally. We're talking about an artist that is in whole digital. This artist has been created by the computer analysis of thousands of points of measure, you know, like when you uh, when you put an actual person on a digital camera so that the animated one looks like that person, sure. right? Okay, so they an they analyzed all these hundreds of thousands of data points to create movement. Uh, they gave him a puffy jacket and some Tims and things like that, but all of the lyrics are generated by an algorithm. I'll read a little including bit Including the er, the big Ed er. <laughs> First of all. Why is that funny? Is, <laughs> is saying er not basically saying it? <laughs> I'm following your suit anyway. from earlier. <laughs> anyway. You said that his it sounded a little too ER. And so uh, I'll read a little bit. Again, this is from the dailybeast.com. It says, artificial intelligence disrupted the music industry this week when a major recording label signed and then quickly dropped a robot rapper who casually dropped N-word in their lyrics. Here's a quote. Real talk. Anybody who is involved with research, development, and signing this artist at Capital Music should have their resignation submitted on their jobs <laughs> and terminated. This is from rock singer Ali Atkins. Uh, uh, because... That just means you don't get 50 fucks about the music. You just care about making a dollar. And mm -hmm. and I think that's true, of course. It's interesting that we have a lot of rappers standing against this because do you think the record labels, do they think the record labels are interested in them or, or, or making a dollar? Great point. And, and that even goes beyond hip hop. I would say in rock and country, you know, we, we were... Yep. Any, you know, so I just want to make make it clear that this issue isn't exclusive to hip hop, and hip hop is by far the most lucrative genre of music out there today. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, across the globe. So that 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 point, I think, <laughs> I just feel like a lot of rappers are just so close in understanding the real issue at play. I believe that hip hop can really be a culture changer from a deep 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 foundational level i mean hip-hop has definitely inspired the imagination of countless people what's possible the trajectory that a person like jay-z can have from living in new york city projects to being one of the richest people in in the country thanks to to hip-hop so that imagination has definitely been inspired but at the end of the day i feel like if hip-hop and ultimately all genres of music would get away from the capitalism, from the commercial commercialization of it all. 
we could elevate it all and inspire some activism and some advocacy and some actual systems change. But the music industry is stuck in this financial thing. And now the music industry said, all right, well, we don't even need y'all to make the money anymore. We'll just create a, a robot or, or whatever to do it. I, I feel like there has to be more engagement of that from the artist's perspective. At the same time, Scott, mm -hmm. we can't force... Uh, we can't expect, you know, emerging artists and, and all of these folks to be starving artists for the rest of their lives, I suppose. It, it just it seems like there's a balance there that we haven't quite identified yet. The first the first place that I want to are we talking about digital face? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the, well, digital blackface is named right. in this article. So that right, they named it that way. But that was the first because now I'm I'm a little bit sensitive to it because we talked about um with the uh, Leonard Bernstein film, with uh, who's the actor that's playing Leonard Bernstein? Oh, uh, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, yep. yeah. So he wore a prosthesis right. for the nose, right? And then they called that Jew face. All right, there's a conversation there. But um, one of the uh, comments here that I wanted to bring in was, uh, representation means accurately depicting all the black people from all backgrounds, places, and experiences. FN Mecca represents all the general stereotypes right. of what a black rapper is. And if we're listening to algorithms, I mean, you you listened to a couple of those tracks and you said, okay, it kind of goes, it kind of goes. Yeah. But is it enough to bring you back? Was there any anything in that algorithm rap that made you go, he is speaking to my experience. No, I mean, definitely party music, definitely just general, you know, one day that will be played in Kmart, you know, <laughs> as, as, as you're shopping. Something that I've been, you know, that this issue makes me think about is you have these teams of engineers and songwriters and all of these machine people, you know, folks in the machine to create this digital superstar, what they hope would be a digital superstar. Is that not what's always been happening, but just with humans? They talk about right. industry plants. It seems like we have been rooting on, and, and you know, a lot of artists out here, a lot of very popular artists are writing their own music and doing it their own way. I'm, I'm not saying that, but we can't deny the fact that there have to be some individuals out here that they plucked from the Disney Channel or plucked from wherever and said, here, wear this costume, sing these songs, <laughs> mm -hmm. stand on these stages, and we'll all make a lot of money. Yep. What we're, we're, we're just seeing the, the next level of that is, is all I'm saying. Except there's no real people to be chewed up and spit out by the industry. Exactly, yeah. But um, they make a point here that F, F and Mecca was created by two non-black men. Here we go. Go ahead. <laughs> um, Anthony, Anthony Martini is one of the non-black men mm. who um, said, the old model of finding talent is inefficient and unreliable. It requires spending time scouring the internet, traveling to shows, flying to meetings, expending resources, all in the search of the magic combination, i.e. your job as a record executive. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's what we're talking about. But um, So he goes on to say, um, you put out all that effort and it might not translate into a super superstar act. Now we can literally custom create artists using elements proven to work, greatly increasing the odds of success. And by success, they mean money for them. Right. So they have found one person to cut out so that they don't have to cut them in on the profits. And it reminds me of this, this great line that is in the 1992 film, The Player, when they're essentially talking about the invention of reality TV. Mm -hmm. 
This this uh, movie exec says, I was just thinking about what an interesting concept it is to Im eliminate the writer from the artistic process. If we could just get rid of these actors and directors, maybe we've got something here. Mm -hmm. Now, let's tie it to the arts. In what way are arts institutions taking the Black story, taking what they know will be successful, lucrative, based on everyday or not everyday conversations but conversations that are happening these days DEI and those sorts of things taking out the individuals that you know might make things shaky and following the pre-prescribed research driven sort of middle ground that you know makes people the money and allows them to say oh look we're 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 doing the right thing i just think <laughs> there's i i think there mm -hmm. are you know bridges or, or 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 strings to be drawn between those two worlds um i'll i'll wrap this up by just reading the i, I love when the articles include tweets <laughs> because that means you're paying attention to the people mm -hmm. and what's going on in mm -hmm. the conversation this article included a, a tweet from sean that says siri don't say nigga alexa don't say nigga why does fn mecca say nigga that's a great question isn't it it's a beautiful let's question ask, let's uh, let's ask the the two non-black people who created it <laughs> and it's interesting because especially when you get on some of this late night television and some of these uh, music videos in particular they will not bleep the n-word but at midnight you don't hear the f-bomb you don't hear s-h-i-t you don't hear any of that but we're we're okay with language that um you know diminishes and oppresses black people especially if it makes us a dollar. Hmm, 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 hmm. Anyway, where, anything else on this? Um, <laughs> yes, I'd like to say I think this is a terrible idea, and I'm glad that the record company dropped the project. Well, Very glad. But I'm going to let y'all be, uh, be the judge. Oh, you're going to do it. So we're going to play a little okay. bit of this. So this is one of the tunes that this AI rapper, FN Mecca, put out, or I don't even know if you can say that, but it's called Moonwalking. So let's listen to a little bit of it. He said, raising Bobby like I'm Hank Hill. Or, <laughs> but then <laughs> I couldn't help but to laugh at, at, at that line. Um, Ain't no niggas like we playing hockey. <laughs> mm. Mm. Where, where are the, so, there, so there is a white man somewhere writing that and then <laughs> having a black anime. And, and and just sit and just and just having a grand old time, just laughing there in the studio and wiping all of his tears on the uh, social media kickback uh, pushback with hundred dollar bills. You know, they are the real gangsters, aren't <clears throat> they? You you talk about gangster rap; those are the gangsters right there. I will listen to F and Mecca when I myself am part cybernetic individual and. All of the pole dancers will be robots. <laughs> That's well, they're, well, they're already made out of the same materials. Anyway, hey. anyway second movement, second movement. <laughs> where this <Ooh>. is where <laughs> this is <laughs> this is where Scott and I uh, talk a little bit about some music that we've been spending <laughs> some time with over the week. I'm going to get us started. So, uh, very randomly on Friday evening, Dell uh, sends me a note. He's like, "Hey." 
one of the neighbors has some Rammstein tickets that they're giving away, but we need to give them an answer right now. Do you want to go to a Rammstein concert? And I was like, okay, fine. So we've we've actually talked about Rammstein on Triloquy. Opus 74. Um, but but for folks who have never heard of Rammstein, how, how would you describe them? What is, what is Rammstein? A German industrial metal um, performance band performance experience it is it is definitely a spectacle i think the tune that we talked about on triloquy was called america Mm -hmm. they didn't perform that song uh when 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 i saw them yesterday but they did play what i would say perform what i would say is their their big tune it's called du hast and sounds a little like this this is what i've been spending one one that goes you want one that goes this goes way that they opened up this song at the concert so they were on stage and of course there's already been a lot of fire Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. that's what metal shows are about i guess this is my first (laughs) one one. and there's fire everywhere and then there's some huge rockets that they put on stage and the rockets fly up like into the auditorium it doesn't look like they were in control of it i mean i hope that they were but the rockets <laughs> like are drones are no like firecrackers like you know like oh, a little and, and they light them and they go flying everywhere and as soon as they explode everything that can shoot fire in the whole arena is shooting fire i mean i could feel the little singes on my eyebrows but you know <laughs> the the people were really into it and it was a thing i was a little you know uh what did what did effing uh mecca say no no ninjas like it's a hockey game or whatever Mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw some black people at this show and and it was cool f- for for me to not feel like I was isolated in that way but even if I didn't see other black folks I don't feel like I would have felt so isolated because you saw lots of versions of people wearing all black you know there there were folks who obviously have been at every you know i don't know what who are the metal bands i don't even know but you know aerosmith aerosmith all you know you have that crowd but then you have the 20 year olds and their you know uh black catholic schoolgirl miniskirts and pigtails and and you know dramatic makeup you have folks like me i mean it was it was a very diverse crowd in that way so that was really fun for for me to experience i had never been to a metal show i kept thinking wow this must be how folks feel going to an orchestra concert the first time i guess <laughs> this is i guess this is what i should wear so i'll wear this or you know so, <laughs> so you know i just put on some all black you know and i wore my black tims you know i was trying to look hardcore there um but anyway it was a good time so now i've been listening back to uh rammstein you know, I, I don't understand German, you know, and quite honestly, you, the, you get context, though. And, you know, <laughs> the music was so loud <laughs> yeah. at the concert. Yeah. I was afraid to take my ear uh, uh, earplugs out. I, I, I just knew that there would be some damage. So uh, a lot of it was sort of muffled for me for that reason. But it was a vibe and, and I enjoyed it. The uh, the the one other um, 
thing I want to shout out about the show is that their opener wasn't a band. It was actually a piano duo, the the duo that played. Uh, they're a French duo known as Duo Abelard. They have a social media. They don't really have a lot of recordings out there yet. They don't even have a website, but they were play, be, playing very popular rock tunes on two pianos, and it really worked. By the time you get amplification and, mm. you know, two women in really sparkly <laughs> outfits, you know, people are jamming along, and it's cool. They even played uh, some uh, Rammstein tunes, mm. uh, but I, what I learned later on was that Duo Abelard Abelar actually uh, replaced another piano duo as Rammstein's opener, a group called Duo Jadecock. So I've also been listening uh, to some of their music. And I wanted to uh, share just an example of what that aesthetic was uh, as a piano duo opener for this rock, this metal concert. This is a Duo Jadecock tune called Clavier that I've been listening to a little bit. It's one thing to listen to that here, but when you're in a stadium and all of the sounds are amped up, they're mm. putting a little bit more bass on the left side of that piano. Sure. You get people banging their heads and rocking out, and we have something as simple as two pianos. We talk about uh, building bridges and moving uh, particularly the radio, public radio, classical radio industry forward a lot by talking about black music, R&B and soul and jazz. But I think this is an, another place where a lot of programmers out there could stand to explore looping in, finding a reason for the hardcore metal fans to listen to your classical radio station by putting on some music that's reminiscent of that. And this is two pianos, so it's not like it's outside of the aesthetic norm that these uh, classical radio stations are, are supposed to be platforming, and you have an opportunity to reach into an audience that you uh, may not have. And, and this album is actually full of uh, Rammstein tracks as played by this piano piano hmm. duo so you know I, th I think it's a thing to explore surely you would think it would be a cool thing to put some piano transcriptions of metal tunes on the radio oh that could i be would a thing. love that i wouldn't even let on at first <laughs> yeah i just press play and then come back and say yeah you have you ever heard of band Ram ramstein well the the the, the material is the, the material is there the, oh, the, the content is there so it's up to the uh, program it. directors and everybody to start suggesting it and get it on the radio so that was that was my week in music. A lot of earplugs, a lot of head, because I have they, rock and roll hair. So, they, of right. course, I was banging my head. They've, they've been around <laughs> since 1994. Were they still pretty spry? Did they, did they move around stage easily? There was uh, lots of movement, lots of jumping. One of the... Um, musicians was on a treadmill the whole time all the time <laughs> the keyboard was, player yeah which, which was kind of cool he's yeah, got that kind of energy it, it was interesting you know one of one of my standout moments from the show is the lead singer at one point he comes out in this dirtied up bloodied up chef outfit and one of the musicians is pushed into this giant pot that looks like it's boiling water i'm sure it was dry ice or something in the smoke machine and then uh the guy and the chef 
uh, coat <laughs> comes with this giant flamethrower and starts flaming. I don't see how the man wasn't burnt up. I mean, what do those rehearsals look like? Is there a safe word? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if you come, what if you come in a little too hot, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or, or whatever? You don't duck in time. Mm. I don't. Anyway, I guess that's why it's called metal. Mm. So uh, shout out to Rammstein. Really enjoyed the show. Glad that they came to Minneapolis. I love Duo Abelar and shout out to Duo Jakecock putting a little bit of. Uh, so-called classical piano, some piano duo music on a on a metal stage. Some interesting things happening over there well, in the my, rock world. My music selection this week is going to bring us down a little bit. Who you bring, got? Bring the energy down. Uh, Twin Cities artist named Chastity Brown. She is. Uh, they they put all sorts of labels on modern soul, mm-hmm. new blues. You know whatever they want to say, but really it's um, it's everything that she comes in contact with and is influenced by. So there's Americana, blues, R&B, uh, the new sound. Um, Devon Gray, who was uh, on the podcast back mm-hmm. in uh, season one, uh, toured around Europe with her. They, they toured as a duo for a while. But this track that I want to bring in was released in May, April or May of this year, I want to say. And it's uh, an album full of stuff that she was starting to create as the COVID restrictions came down so um i think the uh the album has something to do with like staring at the walls Mm. or inside the walls or something like that but um garrett really this song was like when it hit me just right it was like church Mm. because it's her voice and a little bit of a chorus behind it about a minute in you 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 hear some gentle percussion and you go okay it's got a heartbeat okay so we're building But by the time she's a minute and a half in, and the percussion joins. It's a vibe, and and that definitely sounds like the vibe you get into when it comes to the music you really enjoy. When she starts to sing about down West River Parkway, Mm -hmm. there's uh, behind the old boats, there's a corner just over there. It's hidden low. I know where that is, and I've been there, and there's a reason that I was there, and... This was Church. It's called Wonderment. By Chastity Brown. Thanks so much for bringing that in. Wow. Mm. A lot of local local arts of different types happening here in the Twin Cities. That's right. This reminds me of a question that 
I'm going to ask you after the uh, the third movement, after our interview feature this week. I'm just going to uh, put a put a tab there uh, as I introduce Brandy Waller Pace. Brandy uh, is the founder of a nonprofit called Decolonizing the Music Room. I've been uh, having my eyes on this organization for a while because you know Triloquy is here to decolonize the phrase classical music, right? So. To do that, we need lots of other decolonizations happening and lots of different conversations. And Brandy Waller-Pace and her team do that from the education standpoint. Uh, their, their description here, Decolonizing the Music Room is a nonprofit organization centering Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian voices in music education and related fields by providing training and educational content for pre-service and practicing educators and creating community programming for people of all ages. So I sat down uh, with Brandy. We talked about uh, the founding and the growth of Decolonizing the Music Room, some of the things that uh, they're tackling, some of the specific initiatives when it comes to doing this sort of work and their overall goals. Uh, Brandy Waller-Pace herself is a really phenomenal and uh, celebrated musician of that sort of genre that you're speaking to. Some call it roots folk. I believe uh, Brandy uses the phrase Americana. So, you know, she's really coming to the conversation from that similar area of thinking about what's foundational to America and the American experience and people of color and integrating those stories and that perspective, that context into music education. It's really important work. So to uh, get us into my conversation with Brandy, this is uh, Brandy Waller-Pace singing a tune and playing the banjo. It's called Wake Up, Little Sparrow. Hope you all enjoy this as we get into my conversation with the one and only Brandy Waller-Pace. A lot of music ed is framed in folk as, especially like elementary level folk as heavily related to white Appalachia. But, you know, like the real story behind that is the huge contribution that my people have made to those tunes and to that culture and us creating the banjo as um, enslaved Africans in the Americas, right? So it's like, the extra layer of colonization in my education was the fact that my own culture was erased from things that were there that I should have known were my culture. And my culture was mostly associated with, of course, Negro spirituals and gospel and popular music. And it's such a heavy impression that Blackness doesn't run all up and through uh, all the creations in the U.S., right? So, yeah, for me, it's like the obvious colonization of my music education. But then beyond that, like just the absence of being reflected where I could have been reflected. And when I present, I'm like, what if I had known from my, you know, early childhood that my people created banjos? That's like the quintessential U.S. instrument, right? Mm -hmm. I grew yep. up like watching Hee Haw with my mom and stuff like <laughs> not knowing they had anything to do with us. 
I mean, okay, we can go down a rabbit hole talking about hee-haw, but you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean when, when you ask that question, what if I had known, that's a question that always pops back up for me every single time I engage someone who went to an HBCU. You know, mm -hmm. my colonization, I feel like, <laughs> continued well into my 20s, you know, because of the types of institutions I went to. Unfortunately, I didn't even have it on my radar to consider an HBCU. You know, what if I had known? I knew the, the show A Different World, but for some reason that just never connected. Um, so with that in mind, I wonder what role Howard University played in where you are now. Were conversations of decolonization or, or fixing history central to your music education in college? Yeah, so mm, that's hard. It, it feels like, you know how you're raised by your parent and you're like, I'm not listening to you, mom or dad or <laughs> yeah. parent or who, whoever it is, right? And then you hit like, I'm, I don't know how old you are, but I hit like 30 something. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all these things that I'm doing that are coming out of, you know, the stuff my parents said and the stuff they said was important and I'm starting to understand it. And it kind of feels like that being at Howard. Um, like you, it actually hadn't been on the radar to go to an HBCU for me either. And, hmm. you know, again, watching a different world and all that. But luckily, um, I had been bused through an integration program first through eighth grade, but I went to a black arts high school. And thankfully, you know, the counselor told me about Howard and basically forced me to apply, not against my will, but just like, you know, I, I wasn't really sticking with, I wanted to dance, it's a whole different story. Um, so got there and I think, you know, I was young. I was, what's a good word for it? I mean, young people are just like little toots. Mm -hmm. Like I was learning stuff, but I wasn't like, you're not humble at 18 and 19. You might like not be confident, but you also are not humble. Right. <laughs> That's true. There are th things I was interested in learning, but not um, being as critical, you know, as when I was older, especially because a lot of what I do now is framed by having taught and mm -hmm. having dealt with um, racial equity work that was completely disconnected from music ed. But what Howard did give me was, um, first of all, like seeing black people of all different stripes, which everyone doesn't get to do depending on where they're raised. Um, you know, all different, different countries, different regions, different languages, um, various socioeconomic levels, all kinds of stuff. Cause it's just, you know, bunch of black folks there having predominantly black professors having um you know I took like classical piano minor classes but you know I was always going to get some black composers too mm -hmm. and um you know our instructors were absolutely amazing and so just having everything I I did somehow associated with blackness was really, really huge. Um, it's interesting to look back on it now because I feel like it gave me a confidence that is not even necessarily personal. Like, you know, I spent undergrad and grad there. So I spent six years in a place where like, as a black person, I belonged there and it wasn't a question. Right. And I took that out into the world. But also because we know that, you know, our universities and colleges go back to European conservatory models and we look back at those histories, you know, you can still see where whiteness is present and you can still see where gatekeeping is present at, 
you know, any HBCU as well. And the same gaps in, you know, learning about early American music in the way that I've gotten engaged in it exists there, you know, the same. Um, I was very grateful to reconnect with a professor and um, he was able to bring a few of us there to talk about this music, but it's not standard. And so just realizing how deeply impacted all that is by colonization, which is kind of obvious when you think about the history of the universities. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's heavy and understanding. I didn't understand for a long time these, you know, ideas of respectability and how heavy how heavy they are and how much we do to one another based on those ideas and you know, rooted in fear, rooted in scarcity, all those things that wouldn't be there, you know, mm-hmm. if not for <laughs> if not for all of these issues and then, you know, just sometimes rooted in like of course like patriarchy and stuff or just like rooted in the just wanting to punch down right it's like we're talking about student loans and people don't want student loans canceled because they had to pay student loans Mm -hmm. and education broadly and um you know a lot of university education is that idea like i had to go through this horrible thing i'm gonna put you through a horrible thing again that's not every professor but um that that makes it all over, even in HBCU. But I think, again, the difference is um, a very small but incredibly powerful department. I was in jazz studies. And um, there's just like a, there's a little extra like nurture. It's real interesting because even when things might've leaned toward, you know, more systemic whiteness type stuff that we're used to, it's still like those are our uncles and aunties and, mm-hmm. you know, I cannot remember the gender neutral word for not an uncle, not an auntie. I'm trying to be better about gender language, but I can't yep. remember that one. <laughs> but yeah, like it's still, you know, even even um, family with whom you have a complicated relationship is still family. Yep. So that that again was a difference. So much to unpack in that statement, but <laughs> yeah, for sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Did you have a enough is enough moment or a wow what is going on with my life moment that led to decolonizing the music room boy did i i have to um always like let me let me not be messy let me just give you (laughs) um i i feel like a lot of things converge it's really interesting because again these things are not relegated to our music learning or performance spaces right Mm -hmm. so at the time, you know, I had my children, I started having kids and my oldest child had entered the district in which I taught at a different school, just a couple miles away, night and day resources wise. He w- it was a um, a lottery based Montessori and we had done Montessori mm-hmm. school and wanted to continue with that. And I taught a couple miles away and it's um, the school where I taught was historically black at that time it was it had gotten to like 50 50 black latina various identities represented within those two and um the school was still underground it hadn't been renovated yet when it rained water ran down the walls and had to put buckets out um very under resourced it was very overcrowded school um you know you just see all that stuff happen and then i go to my son's open house and i'm like oh Okay, student to teacher ratio legal. Uh, <laughs> a room in which they can all fit. Um, oh, look, everyone doesn't have desks. They are flexible about the ways in which they can work. 
oh, there are little extra, you know, nook spaces. And I remember like visiting one day and the teacher's like, all right, we're going to lunch. Bye. And then they just like wander <laughs> off. Right. Versus, you know, our black and brown babies are like inmates, like right, sure corralled. Yeah. On your bag. Don't say, you know, all, all of this stuff that I thought was normal until I began to look more critical at it and even how I was being complicit within it. So I was like, I, I think it might be time. And we talked through it. And um, Laura Labatee-Song, I, I reached out to earlier and a few other educators and, you know, Michelle McCauley, who is um, Northern Lake Paiute Shoshone, um, um, Alisa Rangel, who is of Mexican descent and taught in the same district as me, um, just a bunch of us, like, creating some content and trying to trying to launch something. I hope that answered the question. I kind of oh, definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the, the story of the uh, of the beginnings of, of, you know, a vital part of the work as as you laid out there is identifying the racism, the patriarchy, the massage noir as as it exists. That's also just the first step. What does decolonizing the music rooms actual work look like beyond identifying the issues what is the how does the training actually manifest yeah so we actually have three parts we have our content that represents black brown indigenous and asian voices anyone can submit um it needs to be in line with you know general decolonization anti-racist philosophies of course um but we present that free but we also compensate creators because so often our work is stolen or poached or we're expected to come into these hostile spaces, like just for the glory of being there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, even if it, you know, can't always be a lot of whatever, like we, that's a really important part of our values um, is compensating for that work and making sure that it's free and accessible and not behind a paywall. Because again, there's just so much, a lot of my study was like, oh, you're in a doctoral program. Can you down? download these articles for me and you know like now that I'm in a doctoral program I actually have access but it can be infuriating that to see how much is 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 blocked not that that's mm -hmm. the only way to get important knowledge but you know to even understand what the field has been doing you you have to read a chunk of that stuff um the training that we do you know training um professional development keynotes or whatever works to instill foundational concepts. Like, what are we even talking about? So, you know, we talk about whiteness and we talk about um, racially minoritized identities. And we talk about, you know, all of these things and make sure that we are speaking a common language, knowing that language is fluid. People choose to be identified how they want to be identified, but just for the sake of being able to say something and we all understand what we're talking about, um, giving that understanding and then getting educators and, and other professionals to understand that our current field is not neutral and never has been neutral. It's mm -hmm. rooted in something. And the things that we consider normal are treated as normal for a reason. Um, and I can especially talk to them like studying jazz. I did not study music ed in my, my undergrad and grad. I got certified afterward. And so what is normal to them is often very much not normal to me. Right. Um, oh my gosh, really good example. I took a um, history of US music ed class and we went through the whole class without 
talking about HBCUs, except for like a sentence that had Fisk in it. But it was referencing the white guy who started the Fisk University. Right. I mean, yeah. So I'm like, wait a minute. First of all, this is my entire educational existence. Mm-hmm. Second, it graduates what, like, I think 20% of black graduates are from HBCUs. So it's like, how are we going to talk about band? Talk about HBCU bands. Like, right. these things that for me are normative because they're they're rooted in my culture. But thankfully, I was in educational spaces to understand that they're rooted in my culture um, were really, really important. So, you know, just getting people to understand, like, white western european stuff is not the stuff yep yep some of the the, stuff you think is white western european ain't anyway but (laughs) (laughs) and i i think you know history has proven that the sort of uh divide and and conquer tactic is one of the systems that has uh maintained the oppression of racially marginalized people Uh at the same time as i'm sure you know and understand bipoc POC, those sorts of initiatives often marginalize black people to a greater degree. So with that reality understood, I wonder if you can uh, speak to uh, Decolonizing the Music Room's dedication to the BBIA approach, black, brown, indigenous, Asian approach. Yeah, and it kind of goes, you know, further into what we provide. Um, Yeah, I'm with you. Anti-blackness is a through line that nobody wants to acknowledge as a through line because it extends like it of course heavily is against those who are black but heavily against darkness in general and it's not it's not acknowledged and you know all these other cultures and i talk about that like there are black latina folks right who are erased or um you know the, the colonization and the impact on um, how we see ourselves and how our minds work. You know, we'll have straight up black folks looking like me claiming not to be black. <laughs> like, how did Sorry you to laugh, but. No, you, it's like, how did you get here and get this color? Like, right. you, it's just different st- stop on the boat. So um, there are black Asian folks. Yeah, black indigenous. Black indigenous folks. And in, within each, um, within each group, micro group or how, whatever you want to name them, there are the blackest and the darkest saying, we are being erased, we are being excluded, mm. we are being killed, such and such and such, right? Um, and we see it in academia. It's like there there are conversations about decolonization, but the dominant conversations in music is specifically about colonization are not coming from black folks and they're not coming from darker skinned folks. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see that happen. And it's not because we're not saying things, right. But, you know, all of this works systemically. Um, so as far as having people together to work on the site and to make programming and present, we don't say black is most important because that's not how we Mm co-conspire, but like, you have to acknowledge that anti-blackness is a through line. It, yep. it has to be a thing. Um, and it doesn't mean that that is the only thing we talk about, but it means like that has to be like a, a truism in right. the work that we do. And um, another part of what we do is the um, African-American Roots Music Festival, the Fort Worth African-American Roots Music Festival. And it centers blackness and roots music, um, old time, bluegrass, jug band, all of this stuff. 
but it's like a space making thing, right? Because there's so many of us who are reclaiming all of this music and culture or um, who have been in it and just, you know, have not been centered. Mm-hmm. And just saying, you know, we can be unapologetically all the kinds of Black we are. And that can be the main thing here. We are launching a symposium, fingers crossed, symposium in January, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian Music Education Symposium, which is not restricted only to educators, but it's just like a space for us, right? Like we have to create that space. And it's not just so we can breathe, it's also because we need to have some um, in the family discussions. Yep. That, you know, to it's it's like, I have my kids and I'm like, don't talk about that out of the house. Mm-mm, don't <laughs> we have to have that kind of stuff because yep. we have to acknowledge anti-blackness and we have to acknowledge indigenous erasure and we have to acknowledge um, you know, the minority myth that hinges on anti-Blackness and how we've been pitted against Asian folks right? in in the country. Like, and we have to acknowledge the ways in which we are interconnected that we don't even understand. Um, So, you know, that's a, that's a heavy part. Aside from highlighting the voices, it's just like all around space making and getting people to understand that we are not um, tokens and we do not, like I start my presentation by saying, you know, just note, uh, Brandy Waller-Pace is one black person. I'm not all the black people. So don't do that. Don't go somewhere and say Brandy Waller-Pace said this and black people think this, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And the more we represent that, the easier it is to understand, but also like we need space to like dream and rest and love on each other and, you know, fight it out, whatever we need to fight out and then come back together in love. Um, and I think that is the biggest part of what we do and being able to have that mutual acknowledgement. Um, because once whiteness comes into play, there's going to be, you know, even more intense, like you, like you said, pitting against one another and weaponization of our words and what we say and you know this black person did this or my asian friend says this and mm-hmm. it's like we have to be able to be free from that gaze as often as we need yep yeah what is Al- what does alice walker say about um womanism like um not separatist except in cases of not separatist except for safety i think is mm-hmm. what she and it's like yeah we are not safe out here like we are going to have to have some stuff that's just for us and we deserve that yeah and you know white folks are afraid of that because when things were just for white people there's fire and torches and guns and stuff and they're afraid it will be that will be turned back upon them when we are able to gather together but we like we we like to be free together mm-hmm. our yeah. our urge isn't to destroy <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean it's not inherent in white people. I'm t- just talking about like systemic whiteness and the history. Right. Of that. right. A, a, a part of that uh, avoiding, you know, that tokenization, I believe, is making sure that a lot of voices are in the space and uh, Decolonize in the Music Room is very successful in that regard. I'm, I'm really excited to go through and see names that I recognize and folks that I've worked with. I mean, Franklin Willis, I've been friends with uh, forever. Uh, Superman, I discovered Superman's music uh, on YouTube and have been a fan ever since. Uh, But but one person that I want to bring to the conversation specifically is John.
Dianzo Payamanat. So as mm-hmm. you know, DTMR affirms decolonization as a uh, ongoing process. Folks like John recognizes places in the world that operate in a post-colonial way. So yeah. I wonder how you uh, balance the reality of ongoing work versus the inherent desire to have that destination, to have this ecosystem where we can just be free. Yeah, I think um, dreaming is a big part of it. And again, going back to that space, like if I am constantly surrounded by whiteness and things that are established by whiteness, you know, it feels like a fence, right? Like I go to a conference by a white-led organization and they're like, here is the affinity room. Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, they chose the space, they chose the time, they chose the length, and we're happy to be together and love that we can do that. But it's like, not quite freedom, right? It's like being in school and like going to recess, but mm-hmm. she's over there. And so like when we have spaces where we don't have to do that, we can we can dream more broadly and there's no one to you know, just like bring the hammer down and remind us where we really are because where we really are is outside of it. And for me, that's the balance is like being able to feel like we can dream together and we can just kind of say what we want to say and the way we want to say it. Because, you know, there's going to be space to commiserate. It's like you have to unpack and you have to decompress and stuff like that. But once you get beyond that, it's... um you do get to that point of being able to imagine something in the future and not I think a really frustrating thing for me is um, like we started the organization and even the language was like, let's see what it, it was something about something with whiteness, right? It's like, look, still motivated by whiteness, right? <laughs> and so having to be intentional about creating something outside of that, I think sets that emotion, having to dream and not like have everything we do being response to whiteness. I mean, you know, well, I was having a conversation like you can't uncolonize, right? Like once the encounter mm. had, it has been had, but um, being able to be together metaphorically or literally outside of it where, you know, like you can imagine something else is like in my research, Afrofuturism is also always a part of it. And so just, you know, like being, even thinking about the way that, you know, black folks in a certain time in our history, like all we really had was the future, you know? And so just carrying that tradition of understanding that we're looking back to the past and um, we have room to like safely dream about something makes a balance. It's tenuous because there's a lot, there's a lot going on, Mm -hmm. but um, having good boundaries allows for that dreaming to happen um it's so funny like it depends on the day you ask me (laughs) (laughs) sure (laughs) like it's just just an optimistic day or is this a you know a different kind of day um yeah but there's 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 some balance some balance in there what you're bringing to mind (laughs) when you talk about different types of days there are certain movies that I try to stay away from if I know I'm entering certain spaces because I want to enter a space as uh, approachable and as mission driven as possible. For example, I can't watch 
remember the Titans before giving a, a panel discussion or, uh, or a lecture because, you know, I might have some fire that <laughs> some strays that that might be caught somewhere in the audience that I don't necessarily uh, want them to go. All of that to ask you about the road ahead and identifying and working with allies and accomplices. How do you balance engaging concepts like whiteness while looking for that unity, that broader unity that's going to get us to the front? I'm actually looking for reparations hmm. and freedom, to be honest. <laughs> um, everyone has a lane and there are people who are looking for um, a lane that gets whatever done in the most harmonious way possible. I feel like I want to get things done in the most like true to whomever way possible. Hmm. You know, depending like it's funny when you were talking about movie, I was like, I mean that let's let's bring the fire to the presentation. Then, you know? <laughs> like, sure, sure. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna hurt anybody, but it's like um there's a lot of hmm, attention on like peace and balance and such and such. And I'm like, it's interesting, like the lack of peace that we get in our everyday lives, and the further we go back, the um the closer it is to complete overt violence and terror, right? So I'm like, I can't, I, I used to not be like this, but I feel like I have a better understanding of my, my personal approaches. I can't, I cannot do what I need to do with everyone's harmony in mind. That's not really right. With whiteness is harmony in mind. Mm -hmm. Like how they'll always remind you, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King said, peace. Not all he said things. a lot of other things as well. A lot of other stuff, <laughs> yeah. And y'all killed him. Mm -hmm. I can be as respectable as I want to be. I will still be shot dead in the street. And not only will people, you know, um, like drag my name through the dirt, I'm a Black woman. Like, will it even really make the news cycle? You know what I mean? So um, for me, it's more like we need to be free. And we need to be ourselves and we got to abolish a lot of stuff. I know that can't literally happen right now, but I really appreciate being outside enough to be more direct and blunt in a way I feel is functional, especially because there are so many people who do not have that option at all. And it's even stuff like, you know, I, I referenced earlier, if I'm black and y'all need me to talk about diversity and I'm here because your organization kept black people out. And so now, well, I'm not coming for free and mm -hmm. paying to, you know, like, no. And just, you know, values like that. We've been so intentional about that. We can see the ripples, you know, like we see our colleagues who are being approached with, you know, compensation offers, not because that's all their work is worth, but it's like, that's a lot of emotional labor. And then outside of the presentation, you got to walk through those halls. I got to, you know, have somebody grab my hair and say, these braids mm -hmm. are pretty. Is it real? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> a lot. So um, I am more of the mind that like, if someone wants to co-conspire, good, like, come on. Um, if you feel if you feel the discomfort from a place of whiteness, I'm like, I don't really know what I can do for you because it's not my job to do that. Mm -hmm. But when I present, when I talk, I do say, you know, um, processing takes a long time. 
You need time and space for it. We don't deserve to bear the weight of your processing and whatever. Um, so, you know, go, go figure that out. Doesn't mean you can't talk about anything, but you know, it's like, like if I talk about my ancestors enslavement and you cry, maybe, maybe don't do that right there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, you know, a lot of what I hear in the mainstream discussion about, um, about the goal has to do with, um, yeah, like civility and um, allowing certain things to be able to conf to function, but changing them within. And I'm like, it would be so great if everything was just raised and um, rebuilt, and then my job didn't exist anymore in its in in the way it did. It would mm -hmm. be more of a um, you know, just like presenting just because it's good stuff rather than like, because of the high level of oppression that we have to encounter. Yep. Yep. I have uh, one more question, but before I ask, how can folks learn more about decolonizing the music room? How can they contribute and, and do everything they can to support the cause? Yeah. So we are on Instagram at decolonizing the music room. We have a Facebook public page under the same name and we have a private Facebook group, which we would love for folks to join and be in dialogue with us. Our website, decolonizingthemusicroom.com, is up and it has our programming. It has content from some amazing creators. Um, it has the donation page. Please donate via our PayPal for one-time donations or Patreon monthly. We are actually in the middle of what we hope is a really big push now to make sure we fund our second in-person year of the Fort Worth African American Roots Music Festival. Um, the first in-person year, I still look back on it like, how how did that even happen? We had a, you know, Grammy Award winner, Justin Robinson from Carolina Chocolate Drops, Juno nominee, Kaya Cater, Steve Martin, Banjo Prize winner, Jake Blunt. Mm -hmm. Like, those were our headliners. It's like, how did that even happen? And it is, um, you know, like we have that connection professionally, friend-wise in real life, but also, um, you know, the the mission of, of creating that space is really important. And what we don't want to do is, first of all, have it just die because we can't fund anything. And secondly, we don't want to be like, in order to get that affirming space, you have to take less. Yep. They don't deserve that. And um, we're at the point where it's like, we need it to not go away. We have an Instagram um, donation drive right now. We have a drive on Facebook um, or a fundraising campaign. And through those channels would be excellent because we we want to be here and we don't want to be here at the expense of you know the very values we seek like i don't we don't want chick-fil-a money and we don't mm -hmm. want money you know what i mean like we want um people who are actually invested in the mission and and have some understanding of what we're trying to do donate yeah so you spoke to uh your time at howard uh including some of the western classical piano training and, and that yeah. sort of thing. I think a lot about concert programming and, you know, uh, folks talk about balance of programming and those sorts of things. Uh, in your view, is there any room at all for the, you know, so-called colonized music? Is there room in this work for a Beethoven overture or the study of a Chopin nocturne or is complete divestment what we need to be looking at more? So... 
I'm very much, you know, like everyone has their own lane, different strokes yep. for different folks. And I think complete divestment from that music would be bad first because there's so much joy, like my life without Chopin, Rachmaninoff, like what? You know what I mean? But um, we need to be able to make these decisions ourselves and create this stuff ourselves. So it's like white-led orchestra programs, a couple of Black pieces, right? It's like, no, like, bring in the Black person, let them do that, and let's not pretend like diversity is 15% of something mm -hmm. and just a couple of marginalized groups chosen within that 15%. Um, so I think, you know, aside from some very um, obviously horribly bigoted figures, that there's so much space for those traditions and you know, you know, back to John's work, right? His work on slave orchestras um, and just seeing where we've been present um, by force or by choice and how we fought to create what we want to create. And, you know, we have our composers who for decades, centuries have been creating our own within that tradition. Because, you know, especially Black folks, that's what we do. We, we pick it up, we make it our own. And so many other groups have done the same. I think there's definitely space for it, but like, it can't still be treated like just a white person's thing black people are doing. Or a white person's thing that a Latina person is doing, right? Like we, we also do those things. And so, you know, it needs to, it needs to not be framed in um, what whiteness allows us to take from it. That's Clipper Erickson at the piano playing the sixth of eight Bible vignettes by a composer named Nathaniel Dead. Robert Nathaniel Dead, as a lot of people know him, a black composer uh, from the Niagara Falls area that ended up down in Tennessee uh, teaching uh, black music, teaching uh, piano. I wanted to bring that in because where Brandy and I closed our conversation is talking about how we normalize the fact that the Western classical aesthetic is something that's also black. It's not black and brown people doing something that's white. It's black and brown people doing something that we also do. Back in the second movement, when we were talking about the music of Chastity Brown, the a similar question came to my mind. We typically hear uh, phrases like folk, roots, Americana, mm -hmm. and sort of attribute it to white folks when not only have people of color been foundational in the creation of those genres, they're still participating still and, and leading it today. So I, I kind of want to, you know, continue the conversation uh, where we ended off, where I ended off with Brandy. You know, what is the uh, road toward helping people understand that these aesthetics belong to all of us. This isn't white music. This is music that belongs to all of us. Does it come down to platforming the performers who are also playing Beethoven and and Nathaniel Dett and, and all of these composers? Is it something deeper? What, what are your ideas about unracializing genres, specifically so-called classical music? I think for me personally, that the focus needs to be put on <clears throat> music being created now 
and just recently. Hmm. Because if we want the old stuff, the classical era and the Baroque stuff to still be around and, and, and played every once in a while, we have to do something to perpetuate it now. Right. And that's why I think that if we champion our living composers as hard as we would for this AI rapper. Listen. <laughs> then maybe we'll start to get somewhere. Right, right. But what I'm saying is that in, in order for the, all of the music that is venerated now to survive, we need to be doing more with the people who are creating it now. Because where do you think their influences right. are coming from? My journey, really, I, I try to remind people of this as often as I can. My journey in radio, when I took my job at WUOT in Knoxville in 2016, I said, I have to focus on new music. I have to help people understand that, that classical music is living and breathing, and there are living and breathing people connected to it. Of mm -hmm. course, along that journey, I'm discovering the names of women and black folks that I had never heard before, that I'd never learned in school, that I never performed in my profession. So Damn. that's where my focus came. But at the end of the day, I really do believe and uh, and and agree with you. We have to re-engage what it means to really platform and venerate today's composer. In my work with uh, American Composers Orchestra, I, I do a lot of talking with uh, uh, living composers and uh, and folks who who uh, center their career around new music. Uh, for example, I, uh, I did an interview with Jeffrey Ziegler. The point he was making was that back in the day, you know, even back in uh, Beethoven's day. They were listening to new music. You right. know, they, they were listening right. to music that had just been written. Beethoven Five was performed, you know, at at a uh, at what what can be considered now a new music concert. So the argument that folks like Jeffrey Ziegler make is that they are more in line with the tradition of classical music than the industry today, and that they actually are continuing what has always been done, which is venerate and platform new music, not stay stuck in music that's 150, 200 years old, 50 years old, fine. The Rite of Spring is also not new music anymore. You know, Philip Glass's piano concertos are also not as new as the music gets. So I, I, I hope that we can continue in, in this direction, you know, as we look at the past and consider, you know, the ways that we can continue to, you know, uh, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do a better job of centering today's composers and 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 today's music. So huge shout out again to Brandy Waller Pace. I'll have decolonizing the music room and all of that stuff in the description of this opus. All right, Scott, we're getting into the triloquy, and we have to talk about student loans a little bit. But mm -hmm. we're going to get into it um, with a recording by my teacher. Lacolian Washington. This is uh, from an album he recorded while I was his student years ago back at the University of Memphis, an album called Legacy. It's filled with works uh, by Afro-American composers. And this one um, that I'm going to share is one of my favorites, a tune that I've played many, many, many times that I learned because of Lacolian. It's a song uh, called If You Should Go, arranged for bassoon and uh, piano music here by the late, great William Grant Still.
feel so lucky. You know, I, I, I love that this is, again, one of three songs arranged for bassoon and piano by William Grant Still. When I listen to that, and I think about all the times I've had the honor of performing it and sharing it uh, with audiences. I feel such a sense of gratitude for the beginning of my musical journey to not only have included a black man, you know, who who could, you know, talk to me like I needed to be talked to and vice versa, but for there to be black composers named and centered in our lessons and 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 in our dialogues there are people still today somehow that don't know the name William Grant still mm-hmm. but that is a name that I knew because of my teacher and that would not have happened for me if it weren't for college there are a lot of people who went to school and paid a lot of money to go to school and ended up doing something outside of their degree field or whatever that for from and, and that's and that's fine you know my point is, for many of us, myself included, I would not be where I am professionally when it comes uh, to my uh, education, just what I know about music. And when it comes to what has become my life's mission, my advocacy, none of that would have been possible without my college education. My parents couldn't pay for me to do that. And I couldn't pay for myself to do that as a 17-year-old, as an 18-year-old. So there are certain decisions that I had to make along the way between my bachelor's and my master's degree that have resulted in my current student loan situation. Mm -hmm. But before I go any further, I wonder if you can speak to your college journey, how integral or non-integral it was for you and what it has to do with where you are today professionally and even emotionally as you push for some of the changes that you're pushing for in, in radio. Yeah, it was integral. It was definitely the, um, the, the idea that we were fed in high school was that the, the diploma isn't enough anymore. Mm-hmm. You, in order to compete, you need to have the degree. Um, it wasn't until years later that they have studies released that show that, you know, really your undergrad is, is mainly showing somebody that you, you arrived at a place a certain number of times and completed. That you can show up on time, that you can. And you be, can finish, yeah. something, finish something that you start. Mm-hmm. But when you get into your graduate school work, that's when you really start right. doing your study and right. all that sort of jazz. But I knew within my first year of being a theater major that I didn't want to do everything that it was going to need to be done for me to be successful with that. Sure. So I switched over to the only slightly more lucrative career, a lot mm-hmm, career right. path, slightly more of public radio. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned everything on the job through an in, through internships. Yeah. That's that was the big thing for me. Which um, looking back on it now, I could have probably went to a two year degree like Brown, you sure. know, something like that, and been fine. So why do you or why don't you? have the student loans that you do have or don't have? What what infrastructures were in place for you to pay for the college that, that you went to, attended, finished? I went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha, which in 1988, when I enrolled, cost $50 a credit hour. So I would take four classes and my parents would spend about $600 a semester. I bought my books and any incidentals. And yeah, it cost me so, more to park. It yep. cost me more than six hundred dollars to a semester to park when I went to USC right. in, in Los Angeles. But you got all your coursework in a semester's time for that amount. Uh, well, you, you know, your parents did anyway. Nineteen eighty nine, nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine is uh, when I enrolled. 
Um, also keep in mind that I did not go to a university that had, you know, wild credentials. You know, it was a commuter campus. Mm -hmm. It was a public university. Sure, sure. So um, the equivalent, the, the college equivalent of public school. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I will say that the University of Memphis is similar in that way where I got my bachelor's degree. University of Southern California, private school mm -hmm. in Southern California, mm -hmm. where a lot of very rich people went. I don't know uh, who he was there celebrating, but during my commencement, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was there. So, you know, somebody in his family uh, uh, was in school there and it cost me a certain amount of money to go there. Could I have gone to a, a different school? Yes, I most certainly could have. Would I be where I am today if I had not gone to that school and, and studied with Judy Farmer, you know, at, at USC? I just wouldn't have been because I wouldn't have had the performance opportunities that I uh, had in Southern California, which in turn prepared me uh, for my successful audition with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra after leaving grad school, which prepared me for the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra and all the other orchestras I played with, which got me into radio. And mm. then, you know, here we are. All of those things just lined up just like that. The difference, Scott, between you and me, well, the, the main difference is, is that, A, college costs a lot more than $500 of uh, a semester, $600 a semester, even at the University of Memphis. And B, I didn't have parents who could pay for that. Right. On top of that, I didn't even have parents who could house me as a grown ass man going to college. I so, stayed at home. So so I had to talk about, you know, um uh finding a place to live, figuring out how to pay my own uh car note and car insurance, you know, cell phones were coming out, so I have to uh figure that part out on top of the buying books and eating and, you know, getting to and fro. So that costs a lot of money. I feel like in this student loan conversation, I haven't seen, you know, my social media is very well curated. So I didn't see people complaining about uh, the, the student loan cancellation for the sake of it happening. There was definitely some complaining, complaining about it only being $20,000, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. But I feel like folks who oppose what uh, uh, Joe Biden has has put in place right in time for midterms, mm -hmm. I'll say mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what people who oppose that. I can't help but to feel like I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I can't help but to feel like they don't understand the sacrifices that so many people had to make so that they could get that higher education and have a shot at life. You know, we're we're talking when we talk about first generation college students, we aren't only talking about college. We're talking about first generation makes a salary that's worth a damn. First generation that has a shot at home ownership. First generation that has a, a career and not just a job that they're clocking in and out of. I don't think it's wrong for a person uh, I'll, I'll keep it on me. I don't think it was wrong for me to make the decisions that I made you know, as an 18-year-old to get where I am today. I don't like the idea of blame being put on people. Well, you made the decision to X, Y, and Z because, you know, at the end of the day, as an 18-year-old, I'm not sure that anyone would sign me over a $150,000, $250,000 mortgage, but we they felt comfortable doing that when it came to our education, right? We could sign that paperwork. Mm -hmm. So it it I can't help but to feel like there was a little bit of perniciousness there, especially when we consider the interest rates of these federal student loans. Twenty thousand dollars is almost what I've accrued in interest 
since leaving grad school. And this is through income-based repayment and, and all of these things. So to a degree, fine. I'm, I'm very grateful for what Joe Biden has put in place. I guess my interest is gone now. I still have the other tens of thousands of dollars right. to, to deal with the, the best way I can. I'm, I'm on the side of the, the debts just need to be wiped out canceled out. They haven't needed the money in these past two years with the uh, uh, with the freezing of the repayment from from COVID and X, Y, and Z. Who is on the losing end of complete student loan cancellation? Not me, not the people I know. So whose who's experiences, whose realities are we putting before that, before, before ours, the working people? That's mm-hmm. my question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let me just say that if you think down the stream from yourself, that's where you get satisfaction. Because you know what it's like when you had tens of thousands of dollars of debt or whatever it is. But think about the person that owns owes like eleven five and they got that ten thousand dollars. Yeah. And they're looking at like all of a sudden the end of this tunnel is now in sight. Yeah. 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 What do you think they're gonna take that money and do? They're going to take that money and invest in local economy. They're going to buy homes. Buy homes. They're they're, they're They're going to buy clothing. Right. right. They're they're going to participate in society and the economy. And I'm so so happy for them. There are others of us who still do not see the light at the end of that tunnel. Hey, look, I've got a great uncle who was pissed off that there was a polio vaccine. (laughs) What? If he had polio, why couldn't it, why why didn't everybody else have to have it? And see, and and people, their their life condition just must be low. I I can't wrap my mind around someone having a problem with someone else finding some financial freedom. Some relief. I posted it on my uh, Instagram, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about it here. There are a lot of people, a lot of uh, politicians who have openly, really been uh, critical of of this measure you know people like matt gates who had almost five hundred thousand dollars of ppp loans forgiven people like marjorie taylor green who is way up there at a hundred and eighty thousand dollars this uh this source that i uh found here it has Carol Miller, Republican from the state of West Virginia, $3.1 million in PPP loans forgiven. Okay, so these people, and I'm not even mad at these people. I'm just asking that these same considerations, these same lines of equity are passed along to us. Mm. It's not like we're around here with yachts and and mansions. You know, I'm around here paying my rent that's higher than what most people pay for their mortgages. Because of the, you, you see how right, capitalism right. works and 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 continues to create victims and victims and and oppress and and push you down. Anyway, shout out and congratulations to everyone whose student loan debt is wiped away or almost wiped away by what Joe Biden has did. Dell is in that boat, and I'm very happy that one of us, you know, gets to gets to experience mm. what it what it must feel like to be debt free. I want more of us to consider what it would mean to push even further. We need it. We we need the help out here. And, you know, once we can do that, we can talk about people who, you know, might contribute to their public radio station, might buy more tickets to these opera shows or or, or these or these uh concerts. That's you know, the, hope. the 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 reverberating impact is there. It's not a risk 
to do this for us. It's a surefire way for all industries, and I believe, including classical, to rise up and and uh, and and benefit from this. We have to inspire greater empathy. I think that's what it it boils down to. We just have to get people to not have a problem with someone else being free, with with someone else experiencing something greater. Anyway, that's that's my spiel on the student loans. If you're listening, um, federal government, help a brother out. Help help a ninja out. And and, and set me free from these loans, me and everybody else. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Shout out to all of the uh, folks down there at PRPD. Good luck to you again this week, Scott. Thanks, man. I hope you get them together, and we'll get updates and all of that next week. See y'all then. (laughs) 